How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hey there, Disney files. Thanks for tuning in. Just a little warning that whilst we like to keep things bright and light here at Dissecting Disney Ditties, occasionally we do drop in a bad word or two. So if you're listening at home or in the car with the kidlets, you might want to listen to this later. Enjoy. Hey there, Disney files. Thanks for tuning in. Just a little warning that whilst we like to keep things bright and light here at Dissecting Disney Ditties, occasionally we do drop in a bad word or two. So if you're listening at home or in the car with the kidlets, you might want to listen to this later. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, the president will now be here to answer any questions. Uh, well, thank you all for coming. I, I do have time for a couple of questions. Over here, Mr. President. Mr. President. People want to know what is the best Disney song? That's all the time I have for today. Thank you very much. Mr. Mr. President, you, you can't you can't walk away from this. Mr. Mr. President. Hello, hello, and welcome to Dissecting Disney Ditties with Stuckers and Will. I'm Stuckers. And I am Will, and on this show we will be breaking down each Disney animated classic song by song in an attempt to answer the impossible question. What is the best Disney song? That's impossible! No! That was my best attempt at just completely mixing up accents. <laughs> I like it, I like it. Um, I'll tell you one thing, it's probably not going to be a song from this movie. No, I don't think it's going to be a song from this movie. There was, There was actually like... There was one I kind of liked and there was one that I sort of liked and the rest are just, you know, you know, in Mean Girls where she says, you know, you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed. Can you ever be just whelmed? That was my feeling about this movie. No, absolutely. And I think I expected a lot more from knowing that it was a Sherman Brothers uh, movie where they'd Mm. written the songs. Because they've obviously written, you know, really wonderful songs for Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, The Jungle Book, which is coming up. Um, that I just kind of expected more when I saw their names. And I, I think this was their first cartoon that they had written songs for. Mm. Um, but they had worked on other Disney productions, like the, the Parent Trap, I think, was their first one for Disney. So, yeah, it was. It, I agree. Just very whelmed. Yeah, it just showed a real sort of disconnect between the real drive for perfection in animation yeah and it really it really looks like this was a back burner film mm, yeah and it really was because at the same time as this mary poppins is being made and if you put them side by side you can really see where all the effort into good storytelling went yeah absolutely and i think knowing that that was happening at the same time again sort of added to my confusion as to why this was so average but then you sort of look at that and go oh okay no look i guess they were so focused on mary poppins and i think i remember reading somewhere that um feed the birds was walt disney's favorite song 
Yeah. That was ever written for a Disney yeah. movie. And so, yeah, if they're putting all that effort into writing these wonderful songs for that movie, you can see why this would sort of be almost forgotten a little bit. Not to say that it's bad. Like we said, it's just very whelming. Yeah. Well, the songs for Mary Poppins were written in about 1961, I think. Okay. And then Mary Poppins didn't come out until 64, but that's because there was such, and this is the Saving Mr. Banks film, if anyone's seen it, there was such a road to getting the rights. So they'd pretty much written the music. Um, they'd finalised a lot of the storyboarding and then they Walt Disney hadn't told them, oh, I haven't got the rights yet. <laughs> and uh, And then there was that whole journey to get, the rights from P.L. Travis, who was, in the words of Robert Sherman, a witch. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> they seem like really wonderful people. I watched the the little um, the short documentary you sent me, uh, which we'll also put on the socials, and they just seem like really nice people. Um, I would love to have worked with them on something. The Shermans? Yeah, the Shermans. Well, yeah. actually, um, after I watched this, there's a documentary on Disney Plus about them that I can't quite remember the name of. I don't know if it's just called The Shermans or something else. But the documentary was so incredibly sad because the relationship between the two brothers was just anything but a happy family bond. Really? Yeah. So they didn't really get along as children. Then Robert went to war. He came back. He'd been shot in the leg. He suffered from incredible PTSD. Um, so their their dad was actually a, quite a prolific songwriter. His name was Al Sherman. And basically Richard wanted to be a film composer. Robert wanted to be a novelist. And it was their father who suggested they write, a, they start writing songs. Right. And he said, okay. I, I think it was something like, I believe with your talents combined, you could easily write a song that someone would give their lunch money for. Love, 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 you can't buy love. Gold can buy most anything. They started writing songs together and they got picked up to write for Annette Furnicello. Yeah, right. This portion of your Mickey Mouse Club is brought to you by all the Betty Crocker cake mixes. That's right. It's time for the Mouseketeers. We are the Merry Mouseketeers. Mouseketeers. Mouseketeers, roll call. Count off now. And Annette Furnicello was a mouseketeer and Walt Disney had offered her a um, an opportunity to re- make a record with Disneyland Records, which was very, very much going under. Disneyland Records was basically on the firing line. It wasn't making a lot of money. They weren't having a lot of hits. And despite the fact that they were trying to produce albums for adults in record stores, they were still being thrown in the children's bins. So they were they were getting sort of overlooked and... They decided to sort of revamp Disneyland Records in the late 50s, otherwise it was going to go under, and they decided to get Annette Furnicello from the Mouseketeers and start playing more to the children's market because that's kind of where stores were kind of putting their records anyway. And so 
she got into the studio and it turned out she couldn't really sing. Yeah, right. And she was very aware of that. She kept saying, I can't sing. I'm not a singer. Walt, you know I can't sing. And she got into the studio. She uh, recorded a song. They played it back and they discovered, yeah, her voice is very thin and underwhelming. And so uh, what they did is they, I can't remember who, uh, who the producers were of the record, but one of them suggested that she record over herself and she sang perfectly in time with herself and then he added a crap ton of reverb to that recording, uh, to that, sorry, to that second recording. And so that's how you get that really like classic 60s sound where they always sound like they're sort of singing in a, in a well. And so he did that and it gave it quite a bit of body, body. and then an, another engineer I think turned up the high pass or something on her voice yeah, and yeah. bang, we got that <laughs> ultimate 60 sound and she sounded amazing. So <laughs> it was all kind of like in post-magical work, that might sound great. And Disney needed a song for her, so the Sherman brothers wrote a song called Tell Paul. <laughs> It's not t- tell Paul, it's tall Paul. I always call it tell Paul. With the king size arms, with the king size charms, with the king size kiss, and a king size beep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can hear that that layering of her voice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's very different to. Uh, what we know them to have written for, you know, Mary Poppins and, and these movies and stuff like that. It's very of the time, as you were saying. Yeah. They also wrote um, You're 16, You're Beautiful and You're Mine, which I um, just adore. You come on like a dream, features and green, lips like strawberry wine. You're 16, you're beautiful. the singer will uh is it gonna be like <sighs> no nah, i don't know uh i'll give you a clue he was a beetle oh is that paul nope john nope all oh, right is it ringo <laughs> yes oh my god okay <laughs> 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 See, Ringo was my first one that I wanted to say, but I went, no, it's not going to be Ringo because it's never Ringo. <laughs> Ringo Starr. Wow. Um, yeah, so they wrote that and I was really surprised because I really like that song. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So um, Disney then got them to write a song for The Parent Trap, which uh, which was Let's Get Together. this song once again from Disneyland on the record. We'd be a friend and AZ team. Why don't we make a scene together? 
idea what it was from, and it's from the parent trap. <laughs> so they uh, then they were they wrote for um, a sh- um, I think it was a movie, a TV movie called The Horse Masters, and they wrote this song called Strummin' Song. Hum 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 Strummin' Song, and basically. Walt Disney, after all this, offered them a uh, full-time contract. Yeah. And it was the first time that a writing, uh, sorry, a compositional team had been given a contract at Disney. So instead of movie by movie, it's just you write for us now. Yeah, right. Okay. So they wrote exclusively for Disney for quite a few years and that's when they got asked to write for Mary Poppins. Yeah. That then kicks off the Saving Mr. Banks journey, which is a film that I really want to watch again. I really enjoyed it. I remember really enjoying it. Um, I think that's because I really like uh, both Tom Hanks and is it Emma Thompson Mm. in that movie? Yeah, both Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Um, But as we've come to learn about Disney, it's a very sort of romanticised version of who we know Disney to to have been. Oh, absolutely. And there was actually quite a bit of, um, what do you call it, not hit back? Uh, backlash over the Saving Mr. Banks film because it does very much romanticise Disney himself and what it was like to work there. Yeah, yeah. Um, So animators that were still alive and people that had worked with him were like, what the heck is this crap? That's not what it was like. It wasn't all just like (laughs) roses and smiles. But he did uh, very, very much get along with the Shermans and he used to say to them, if he liked a song, he'd just say, that'll work. Yeah. And they came to know that like that that's that's a yes from Disney. So they're yeah. all good and that's the highest compliment they're ever gonna get. And after um a meeting, I think it was a meeting or a screening of the jungle book. Uh it hadn't opened yet, but it was a um like a, you know, test screening. Yeah. Uh he passed the Shermans in a hallway and said, Keep up the good work, boys. And they thought that was quite strange because he'd never said anything quite like that. Not that it was the most amazing compliment in the world, but, you know, just keep up the good work, boys. And he died like two weeks later. Oh, yeah. And they came to realise that was him basically saying goodbye to them. Yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then and then the Shermans basically fell apart and uh, somehow, somehow we got Chitty Chitty Bang Bang later on. But, yeah, so uh, all, all hail to the Shermans and their beginnings. Now, what's so hilarious about this film and the way that it's been treated historically is usually I do a lot of research into like how it was made and the animation and who was involved and there is nothing on this film. <laughs> now this I think it's because is- they just sort of like they fell <laughs> into each other in the hallway and mixed up some papers <laughs> and then they like pulled it out and went, oh, okay, this doesn't really work, but let's make it a movie. So Let's make it a movie. <laughs> like even in the... In the Sherman Brothers documentary that I watched, which is incredible, by the way, and I strongly recommend it for anyone, it's it was uh, created by their sons. Okay. Uh, yeah. They they talk about their their working history at Disney, and they begin at the Jungle Book. Now, this was right. actually the first. So they talk about the Parent Trap. They talk about Tall Paul, and then they're like mm, Jungle Book. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they just pretend no one wants to admit this film exists. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Parent trap and uh, a tall pole. Then some, something else happened, and then oh well. Then we started on the jungle, jungle book. book. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, 
far out. Yeah, it's okay. just it's so funny. This this film was so hard to research. Um, but before we jump into anything, uh, what are we drinking today, Will? Oh yes, here we are dissecting Disney drinks. All right, today we are drinking a cocktail called Merlin's Love Potion, Ooh. and it is 60 milliliters of watermelon schnapps, 15 milliliters of just a plain vodka. Uh, you give it a squeeze of lemon juice, and if you have any strawberry brandy, but not everyone's going to have that or have access to that, um, chuck in uh, seven and a half mils of that. Then you shake it all up in a in a in a cocktail shaker with some ice, strain it out into a coupe glass, and you can also garnish it with some basil if you have any. And that is Merlin's Love Potion. That sounds Very fruity. As, as yeah, as kind of like fruity as the movie is how it's it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's this lovely sort of pink colour, which um, I think is, is quite nice. But, yeah, it's, it's very refreshing. The basil uh, is quite good in it. So I highly recommend it. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. It, I didn't really like basil much at all sort of growing up. It's only really in the last maybe five to seven years that I've really started to appreciate basil. Mm. Um, and I think I find just a little bit, like if you can just get a hint of it on your nose or something as you're drinking, it um, it really kind of opens it up, but everyone's a bit different. Yeah, keep it on the pizza, I say. <laughs> fair. <laughs> Back fair, where you yeah. belong, basil. Mate, nothing is better than a classic marg with just some cheese and basil and tomatoes. Ah, it's uh, so good. Yeah, love me a good marg. But, yeah, that's... Um, that's Merlin's Love Potion. One day you'll be able to have one of these in person. You won't just watch me drinking it through Zoom. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, maybe next year. Yeah. Maybe yeah. by Christmas. We'll just get lit on Christmas and drink them all in a row. Yeah. Uh, we should do that. Yeah, that would be so We should good. record a Christmas That'll be our bonus, bonus episode. episode. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, let's – let's. okay, fingers crossed. Everyone stay inside, oh get vaccinated so we can uh... – My brain is like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> Such a, such a tacky, tacky I love theme, it. My face. I love the theme. I love it so much. <laughs> the thing that makes me laugh is it overhangs by an extra four beats when I'm singing yay. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like starts with stackers. Yay. <laughs> it gives me like. <laughs> it's still going. <laughs> it gives me like um, Eva Netanyahu vibes from uh, The Simpsons. <laughs> Because it's like, stats with stackers. <laughs> so good. Okay. So the year is 1963. It's been two years since we saw 101 Dalmatians hit the theatres. The music and lyrics are both by Richard and Robert Sherman, commonly known as Dick and Rob Sherman. And the score is once again by George Bruns, although did have a lot of input from the Sherman brothers. Uh, it was nominated for Best Score, did not win. In the cast, we've got three different actors playing the role of Arthur. No, he does not get older in this film. It's just how it happened. So voicing Arthur, we've got Ricky Sorensen and Richard and Robert Reitherman. Wow. Uh, I don't know. They were the sons of the director. Reitherman, I think. Mm, mm. Um, 
Merlin was voiced by Carl Swenson. Archimedes is voiced by Junius Matthews. Sir Ector is voiced by Sebastian Cabot. Sir Kay is voiced by Norman Eldon. And Madam Min, probably the most underwhelming sort of filler villain I've ever seen in my life, is voiced by Martha Wentworth, who we previously saw as the nanny in 101 Dalmatians. Right, yeah. There are no hit songs that came out of this film. And hardly anyone I know has ever even seen it. Yeah. So the the conversation while we since we've been doing this podcast, pretty much every function that I've gone to in you know the very few that we've been able to go to, it the the conversation always turns to what is your favorite Disney movie, and I had never heard anyone go into bat for this movie until my sister's partner mm. went to bat for it. What? He said that this was his favourite movie growing up. Wow. And um, Or his favourite Disney movie growing up. And I, I did ask him why as I was watching it because I was like, am I just missing something maybe? Because, you know, spoiler alert, I didn't find this movie particularly good. Um, no one did. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and so I sent him a message. I said, look, just out of was curiosity. Was it a sort of Will situation where it was the only VHS in his house <laughs> and therefore? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I did ask him. I said, look, what, what is it about this movie that you really liked? And he said that it... It has it just holds a lot of really fond memories of childhood for him. And then he pointed to the mm. dishwashing scene in particular as being something that he really remembered and really enjoyed. Oh. And I think that that's something that we find we will find a lot as we are talking about these movies is that people will feel passionately about it because they just they hold some sort of warm child memory. And I think that's perfectly fine. Um, but yeah, the, the, I, I, I don't recall ever seeing this movie. And I don't think many people do. So, yeah, it's it's weird. Mm. I kind of thought I had, and then I quickly realised I'd never seen it before. But I think I've seen that Madame Mim, some of those images before. Yeah, okay. Like, I think they sort of survived time because the the battle between Merlin and her towards the end of the film is regarded as one of the finest pieces of animation in Disney history. And I think... Because of that, some of those images of her, particularly as the snake, yeah, um, I've seen in things like that. Just seemed like a really familiar image when I saw it. Yeah, okay, okay. And so it's just interesting because this literally has been buried in time. There is no making of the sort of the stone that Disney ever made. Yeah, it's it's non-existent in the Sherman Brothers doco. It's non-existent in a lot of the books that I that I read when I'm doing my research. It's hardly ever mentioned. It was it was just kind of a, a back burner project. And basically, um, there was a super restricted budget on this film because animation was just too costly still, despite the cuts they'd sort of managed to make on 101 Dalmatians. And despite the success that 101 Dalmatians had, animation was still considered too risky. Yeah. Um, and you can see the shortcuts in the animation. I don't know if you picked up on this, but there's a shot of K... Oh, I say a shot. It's, it's not a live action movie there is an animation sequence of k eating a drumstick yeah that exact uh, that exact animation appears three times in the film it's the exact same thing yeah and i noticed uh, particularly when um wart drops all the dishes down the corridor i noticed that was repeated twice so like yeah there is a lot of repetition yeah yeah there's also a lot of recycled animation from Sleeping Beauty. So Archimedes the owl is the same owl that's in Sleeping Beauty that puts on the, the cape and the hat. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the same owl. Uh, there's also a few backgrounds that have been recycled from Sleeping Beauty and the opening 
uh, book animation yep. is very, very, very similar as well. I watch them side by side and I can I can see what's sort of been done to kind of use that and just tweak it to fit this. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I really liked the opening sequence of this movie. I did too. And I and I, I really liked the song as well, but we'll get to that when we talk about the songs, I guess. Mm. And then the most obvious piece of budget restriction that you can see in this film or hear in this film is the, <laughs> the voice of Wart or yeah. Art or Arthur, whatever you want to call him. Or should I say the voices? The voices, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So basically uh, the actor that was booked to uh, uh, to voice that character was Ricky Sorensen. Yeah. But Ricky Sorensen's voice was breaking and you can hear that in the film. Yeah. It's very on the brink. Okay, please, I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. Um, And so his voice did break. And so the director said, I'll just use my sons. I don't know why he didn't say my son. He said my sons. So Richard and Robert are both voicing Arthur. But what they decided to do was instead of re-recording all of Ricky's dialogue, they would just get his sons to record random bits. And sometimes in the one scene, you get all three kids. Wow. I'll get there, okay? I'm sure I can find it. Name's Arthur, but everyone calls me Wart. Oh, no, it's not that. It's just that I've got six demerits. All this work to do. And um, I think the one there was one bit that I noticed, uh, it was sort of towards the end when he realizes he's going to be king and he doesn't know what to do. He's in the hall and he's like, king, but I don't want to be king. I something, something, something. Merlin! Merlin! <laughs> oh, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so bad. Um, it also uh, shows that uh, it shows a little care in that all three of them are American, but it's a British film, and yeah. every single other actor in this film is British. Yeah, well, yeah. British in better commas. Um, <laughs> oh. I just I've never seen a film, a Disney film, that's such a hot mess as this one. And I know we've got another one coming up. Yeah, that uh, is. Apparently worse than this, but uh, but yeah, just I was kind of surprised at how crap this was compared to what had come before it. Yeah, it's strange because I am super into. This is just a little tidbit about me. I am super into Arthurian legend and Arthurian myth, and this is the kind of movie that I would have absolutely loved had it have been you know not this movie. Yeah, and the book that that it's based on is often regarded, I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm planning to read it in the coming weeks. Um, it's often regarded as like one of the best works of sort of semi-historical myth fantasy. Really? Yeah. And I find it really bizarre that this movie, obviously some things have happened that have caused it to just go utterly bananas because the, the book that it's supposedly based on or the, the first part of a four-part series of books that mm. it's supposedly replaced, placed on, uh, based on is, um, is so well regarded. Well, speaking of the original story, yeah. Will, would you do us the honour of telling us what was it about? T.H. White's novel The Sword in the Stone was first published in 1938. It's 312 pages long, begins with the sentence, on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays it was caught hand and... Sumalay logicals, while the rest of the week it was the or- or- organon repetition and astrology. 
And Stackers is wondering when the movies get back to being based on short stories. <laughs> anyway, The Sword in the Stone is set in medieval England where Sir Ector raises two young boys, his son Kay and an adopted orphan named Art, short for Arthur, who is people call Wart because it sort of rhymes. So Ector wants them to edu- to be educated so they uh, learn stuff. And although Kay often fucks up, he doesn't get beaten because one day he's going to be a knight. So Wart often cops it instead. One day when they're on a drinking binge, Sir Ector and his friend Sir Grammor, Grummersum, <laughs> decide that they should go on a quest to find a new tutor for the boys since their previous tutor had gone insane. <laughs> um, Wart and Kay decide to go hunting for hawks, but Wart somehow loses it and goes chasing after it in a forest. While uh, Whilst he's in there, someone tries to kill him with an arrow, so he runs for cover and runs into a knight. Uh, that bit's boring, so moving on to when he finds a cottage where he meets Merlin. Spelt with a Y, not an I. Merlin also has a talking owl, who's so surprised to meet Wart that he literally, quite literally shits on his head. After pulling the old I've been expecting you line, Merlin proves himself to be a boss-ass time-travelling wizard um, and asks Wart, who is still covered in bird shit, if he'd like to have breakfast. He then offers to be his tutor. After heading back to Sir Ector's castle to show off his shiny wizard tutor, Wart and Merlin take a walk to a bridge where Wart wishes he could be a fish. Merlin grants this wish and they go for a swim to meet a thinly veiled American political fish scene. (laughs) Merlin uses this to teach Wart about the dangers of absolute power and they manage to escape being eaten by Uncle Salmon just in time to become human again. (laughs) That's great. High five to Um, me. (laughs) Yeah, well done, well done. At this point, um, Wart says to Merlin that he wishes to be a knight and is sad that he'll only ever get be his older brother's squire slash bitch. So Hector keeps telling Wart to stop doing chores and go and study some more. Next lesson involves Merlin transforming Wart into a bird. Lots of racist, misogynistic crap happens where here where Wart has, Wart has to prove himself to a jury of birds or something. Uh, I think it's another political stab. I should have made Will read this crap. (laughs) Anyway, they try and kill him and he survives and learns something. Yeah. (laughs) Kay gets super jealous of Wart's adventures and has a tantrum. Merlin then sprouts some slam poetry about a dead cow and promises Kay an adventure. The Wart K adventure leads them to the woods where they meet Little John, Robin Hood and Maid Marian and hold the phone. Have I picked up the wrong book? Yeah, okay, weird. <laughs> um, this is the beginning of the, sh- of the first sort of shared universe. The MCU looked at this yeah. and went, ooh, here we go. That could work. The original Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Hood sets them on a mission to rescue Firetuck and the and two other boys from a griffin. And now I'm sad I'm not reading Harry Potter. <laughs> they rescue the trio, shoot the griffin in the eyeball with an arrow, and become heroes. Merlin takes Ward and Ant in another political statement, this time about war is bad and I'm pouring more gin. <laughs> uh, Ward is an owl, then a goose, and hooray for democratic geese. Now he's a badger and now we're into Jesus talk and sweet Lord, please let this book end. We finally hear about the sword and the stone and how the king has died without an heir. Kay goes to a jousting tournament but realises he forgot his sword so sends Wart back to the inn to get it. The inn is locked so Wart turns to see the sword in the anvil and pulls it out before heading to the tournament. 
when Kay sees the sword, he's all, how the hell did you get this? You're the king now. And what soul? What the fuck? I don't want to be king. Power is evil. So they take him to the square and the whole kingdom comes to oogle at the young boy, take the sword out of the stone and put it back in again on repeat. Merlin appears out of nowhere and reveals it was him who gave Wart to Sir Ector in the first place. He tells Wart, your king bro, deal with it. And that's the end of this very long, very political and very dry story. Finn. <laughs> Dad! <laughs> Look, it's um, it's probably the closest adaptation we've seen so far. Like a lot of the um, of the other original synopses you send me, they have a very basic framework that's very similar. But this is quite similar. It looks like. Yeah, what a uh, where I think Disney completely failed was they sucked out the kind of point of the story. So yeah, um. First of all, they made his uh, brother, Kay, an absolute asshole in the film and yeah. he's not really in the book. Uh, second of all, they made Sir Ector opposed to education, whereas in the book he's opposed to art doing chores. He's like, no, you should be learning more. You, you don't want to grow up and not know anything. And I didn't really yeah, understand. Yeah. I, I think they were trying to sort of create some sort of conflict. I'm not sure. And then the third one, which I think is the, the biggest uh, nonsensical idea, is that they didn't give any point to Merlin's lessons. So they made, they make Wart a fish and he nearly gets eaten and that's kind of the end of the fish thing. And then he becomes a squirrel and the moral of that story mm. is you made a, you made a girl cry. Well done. Moving on. Like there's no point. Yeah. Whereas in the, in the book, it's like, I'm going to make you a fish. Now we're going to go to this fish meeting and you're going to see, it, it's sort of like a, um, uh, uh, I think a parable it's, type thing. It, yeah, it's something to do with communism in the first one. The second one's to do with, like, democracy and um, it's to show them, yeah, like, yeah. how power can be mishandled in very different ways. It's not sort of making a comment on democracy and communism, but it's sort of going, you know, you've got yeah. to be careful what you do when you're in power. It's a lot of responsibility, which is why at the end Wart freaks out because he's like, ah, oh, power is hard and evil and I don't want anything to do with it. Whereas in the book, it, he doesn't have any goal. Like, I don't even know what Wart's goal is in this <laughs> film. Yeah, and that's something that I think that I wrote down. I think the biggest problem with this movie, and the biggest thing that the the what makes it so boring and so difficult to watch, is that it just seems like empty shenanigans, and there's no real threat. And I mean, mm. each sort of each little um, you know vignette, if you want to call it something like that, each little part has a has a threat. There's a bigger fish that wants to eat him. There's a <laughs> a squirrel that wants to fuck him. There's like you know, there's all this. There's little threats, but there's no overarching sort of threat. And I think that the problem with this movie, and maybe it's the fact that it's trying to adapt the first part of a four or five part novel, is that we don't see, like you said, there's no real point to any of Merlin's lessons. And even if there is a slight point that's trying to be made about using your head, there's no payoff to that. Yeah. Because he's teaching uh, he's teaching Wart to use his head and to think, but we don't see that in practice. No. At the end of the movie, he fucks up by leaving the sword at the tavern and then sort of stumbles into kinghood. There's no <laughs> thought about it. There's no um there's no intention. It's just shenanigan after shenanigan, boom, there's the movie. Yeah. And I think um because I get that when you have a story like this that's so well known. We all know even if you haven't seen this movie, you haven't read the book, you know that Arthur pulled the sword from the stone and became King Arthur and then we're very yeah. familiar with, like, Knights of the Round Table. So the um, this book actually was written as a standalone novel and then became part of a 
five part series. I think it's five. Um, yeah. So when he first wrote this, he had no intention of extending this story out. Um, but the problem we have is you've got a story where everyone knows the ending already. So how do you create tension? But if you go back to something like Cinderella, we know Cinderella ends up at the ball. Yeah. But somehow that movie still has tension and still has a solid plot and uses plot devices and has, you know, solid character arcs. Whereas this is kind of yeah. like, well, he pulls a sword out and he turns into a bunch of animals, so let's just get there. And then there's a pointless wizard battle at the end. I have no idea what the point of that is. Uh, we don't have a villain. Yeah. So we don't have a goal or a villain. Arthur never says he wants to be king, unlike in the book. And Merlin uses that as a turning point of like, you want to be king? I'll show you what power is. Whereas this, he never says he wants to be king. He sort of wants to go to London, but I don't really understand why. Um, and only in the like last yeah. 10 minutes of the film... Does he go, oh, you don't know what it's like to be nobody. Like, he's excited he's going to be a squire by some, like, twist of fate. Um, he doesn't do anything to really earn that yeah, back. Yeah. And he's like, you don't know what it's like to be yeah. nobody. And he's crying. And I'm like, I would feel sorry for you if this was somewhere at the start of the film. But, like, this is a bit late to be like, oh, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And we've just seen him sort of, like, blather through a whole bunch of stuff without, like you're saying, without showing any real emotion or desire or connection to what he's doing. He's just sort of stumbling around. And then, yeah, at the end, they try and hit you over the head with his, oh, I'm nobody, blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it feels so thin and unsatisf- dis- dissatisfying. Yeah, and it also just ends. Like, it just stops. You're a king. Yeah. They're going to make yeah. movies about you one day. Done. No credits, no play-out music, yeah. nothing. Like, <laughs> just black screen. And it even went for a little bit longer it even went for a little bit longer than I thought. There was that little bit tacked on at the end. He pulls the sword. That you get the whole, oh, he pulls yeah. out the sword. Everyone <laughs> bows to him. And then it just cuts to him sitting on a throne alone. And then he's trying <laughs> to escape. And then, like, Merlin comes back from the, 21st, the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so tacked on and strange. Yeah, it's it's just so, so, so weird in, in that, like, it just doesn't follow any of the prior Disney animation structures. He doesn't have a goal. He doesn't have a want. And he doesn't have, and there's no yeah. villain. Every single movie that precedes this, the protagonist has a clear want and there's a villain who's trying to stop them getting what they want. Yeah. It's sort of like they created Madame Mim and then she somehow fell onto the floor and they made the whole film and then went, oh, crap. We made a villain. Oh, just just yeah. put her in there, like in the last fifteen minutes. Like, <laughs> so it's she's like just- when I was in high school, and I'm like, oh shit, that English essay is due. Oh, hang on, here it is, crumpled up at the yeah. bottom of my bag. Let me just <laughs> smooth it out quickly. Oh no, there's like a crushed orange on it. Let's try and just brush that off. Here you go. Here's my argumentative essay on, um, the, you know. Passion of the Christ or whatever it was I was arguing about in 2004. <laughs> yeah, so there's no villain and there's no sense of urgency or suspense. Like there's no urgent need for Wart to become king. And Merlin's like, I'm going to educate you. And it's like, what, 45 minutes into the film that we see him finally learning to read and write? Yeah. There's just, yeah. I didn't understand what is the point of anything in this film. And I think that's the problem. I think there is no point. Yeah. <laughs> Like legitimately, yeah, it's the 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 first lesson, if you want to call it that, it, when he's a fish, is um, you have to use your head. 
and that's going to take some concentration. <laughs> the second lesson is sometimes this you're going to have to fuck a squirrel, uh, but you know if you don't, you're going to make her upset, so you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> and then the third, the third lesson is you're a bird, you might stumble into a bad situation with a hastily constructed villain, and your tutor's going to have to bail you out. Like, it's... I can't. I just can't. <laughs> it's a hot mess. I, it's also worth mentioning that every single female in this film, and when I say every single female, I'm counting three, so two squirrels yeah. and Madame Mim, yeah. they are all either overtly, like, <laughs> um, sexually desperate. <laughs> like, yeah. We get two horny, needy squirrels yeah, yeah. and a crazy, ugly lady who sings about how ugly she is. Um, so, so, like, this is probably the most misogynistic film I've seen so far from Disney. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just so, so forgettable. And when it started, I thought, oh, you know, I can, you can hear the Sherman in the music. You can hear, yeah, that kind of. They still, the songs aren't bad in this. No, they're just meh. Yeah, and I think it's because the whole thing is just. Meh. And that's the thing, like all of my, basically all of my scores um, are very average scores because it's just very mm. average. And it's, um, it's un- I think that these songs in a better movie might have scored better because maybe they would make more sense in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, uh, I just can't. I just can't. I think it's also because they, they haven't got a lot to write for. It's. Yeah. Like- yeah. There's no the songs aren't plot devices because there's no plot. So yeah. it's not like, oh, this is the scene. Write a song for it. Like there's no And it's in that um in that short behind the scenes video that I mentioned earlier that you sent me, they talk a bit quite passionately about how they were sort of learning um because they'd been given permission to coordinate with the musical director of the film who was writing the score, who was George Bruns, um, that they were able to open a dialogue to make the songs fit the sound of the score more and things like that. Mm. And I almost feel bad for them feeling so passionately about this and talking so passionately about it because the the result is so average. Yeah. They they were the first co- Disney composers to try and bring over the um, idea of the leitmotif. Yeah. So attaching a theme to a person of uh, place or a situation and bringing that back every time you see that person place or situation. Yeah. Um, I didn't hear it super strongly in this, but again, it's probably because the songs were so forgettable that if I heard it later, I wouldn't have even recognized it. Yeah. The only time I noticed it was that I felt there was a disconnect between the, the score and the songs. And so that's why I felt that that's why I was so surprised when I watched that thing, the, the, the short doco, because it does mm. feel quite disconnected. Yeah, I was quite amazed this got a nomination for best score. Yeah, yeah. Because it's yeah, there was nothing memorable about this. No. Nothing made me go wow. No, but look. Um, speaking of, should we jump into the songs? Or yeah, did I think you we're have we're ready. We're, we're chomping at the bit to just talk about the songs here. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's take a quick break then, and then when we come back, we will talk about the music. Hey there, Disney Bandits. Just a quick break to tell our Patreons that we love you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support of the show and for helping us make the best possible podcast we can. If you're interested in supporting us through Patreon, you can find us over at patreon.com slash dissectingdisney, uh, where you can get access to bonus episodes, early access to main feed episodes, 
as well as some other sort of fun stuff as we uh, as we grow the show and as we come up with things. But um, look, guys, if you can't support us on Patreon, that's completely okay. The best way you can support us otherwise is by sharing our podcast and telling your friends about what we're trying to do and sharing it with the people you know and the people you love. Um, also, if you could head over to our podcast page on the Apple Podcast website and just give us a rating or a review, we would really, really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much, and let's get back into Sword in the Stone. So, speaking of uh, Patreon, Will, I think it's time for me to make a public apology for uh, the lack oh! of, <laughs> of uh, our public bonus. Public apology time. Bonus episode two, Peter Pan to returning to Neverland. Some of you might be thinking, where is that episode? Will said it would be out by now. Um, so yeah. I may or may not have, but more on the May side, deleted my <laughs> recording. Um, so when Will went to record it, he just had his side of the conversation, which uh, we felt would not be <laughs> too enjoyable if you just heard Will talking to himself with weird pauses in the middle. So uh, <laughs> I'm very, Although, very look, People are weird. Maybe they would love that. I, yeah. I <laughs> It'd just be like, what did you think, stackers? Mm. Mm. Very good thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I deeply, deeply apologise for that. We will get another bonus episode out ASAP, uh, topic TBC. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Um, look, I'll, I'll take part of the hit on that. We had recorded it so far in advance that by the time I got around to feeling up to <laughs> editing it, I think like two and a half weeks had passed. So I'll take part of the hit for it. But uh, yeah, look, sorry, guys. We will get another episode up ASAP, though. All right. On to the songs. <laughs> Legend is sung of when England was young, and knights were brave and bold. The good king had died, and no one could decide who was rightful heir to the throne. I really like this song. So did I. I think the melody is lovely. It's just, it, it feels like a sort of very um, bardy type song. Mm. Like it feels of the, it feels medieval. It feels like a bard would sing this. Um, yeah, I, I really liked it. I actually think the vocal performance on this is absolutely outstanding as well. His name's Fred Darlin, and according to the internet, he doesn't exist. But I really, really like his voice. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful tenor. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, it was. And it, Really opened the show, the movie well. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And like I said, I thought the, the melody was beautiful and the way that he sang it was really, really nice. Mm. What did you rate it? Uh, yeah, so I initially rated it quite highly. Um, but then I sort of, as the movie went on and I thought about it, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to be more considerate about how we rate things these days and stuff like that. I actually had to adjust it a little bit to make it slightly less. Um, so for music, I gave it a three. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though I really, really liked it, it's quite, it, it feels quite simple in terms of the, the, um, 
arrangement and the backing music and all that sort mm. of stuff. His vocals are lovely, and I think that's why I rated it much higher. But, yeah, otherwise I feel it's quite simple. Mm. Um, the lyrics I gave a two. The animation I gave a two. Um, the contribution to the story I gave a three. Interesting. And our new fifth category. Fifth category. Ding, ding, ding. Pew, pew, pew. Do you want to introduce the fifth category before I rate it? <laughs> So uh, Will and I have discussed in great length how further, uh, how much further we can break down our scores and how much more we can play in favour of the music because at the moment the, the musical contribution is only 50% of our total score. Uh, so we needed, we needed something to just give it a bit more weight in terms of the music given that is kind of the point of our show. Uh, so... We decided we'd give it uh, what we originally called the earworm score. So how memorable and catchy is the tune, which we think is very important uh, when it comes to, um, you know, creating popular music, which this movie is essentially trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if we're talking about how some songs stand the test of time better than others. I Mm. think it's a really good way of rating it. Yeah. Yeah. And it also provides its sort of place in, in modern popular culture. If, if, if it's survived, it's probably pretty catchy um, or so bad that everyone just likes to bring it back, uh, like, you know, the room or something. Um, but <laughs> um, but I thought uh, Earworm score was just a bit boring. So I asked Will for uh, a better name for it. And out of our conversations, we came up with the catchy Kylie Earworm score. Uh <laughs> And Kylie referring to this lovely lady. Okay, so you see where my brain went there. So we've got the newly uh, newly introduced score that we are now applying to all music moving forward and retrospectively rated the catchy Kylie Earworm score. All right, so just to summarise, just to go back and summarise, music was a three, lyrics was two, uh, animation was two, contribution was three, and the Kylie ca- uh, catchy Kylie earworm score is two. We should call it the cake score. We need an A. Yes, cake is my weakness. Ooh, yeah. Catchy, awesome Kylie earworm score. The cake score. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll, we'll talk. Come we'll back. talk. <laughs> um, okay, so for music, I gave this a three. I was yep. almost going to give it a four because I just love his voice so much. Yeah. But then I realised, no, three is probably more fair because, yeah, it is quite simple. It's, it's a simple folk song, really. Yeah, and I think that's where I I was originally going to give it a four as well, but when I got to things um, like That's What Makes the World Go Around and Most Befuddling Thing, they're more boring songs, but they feel a bit more fleshed out in terms of their orchestral arrangement. Mm. So that's why I sort of toned it back a little bit. So yeah, no, I'm completely on board with you, what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I gave it a four for lyrics. Okay. Yeah. I, I just think it, it beautifully sets up. Well, it's the only time we hear about the sword in the stone until the last seven uh, yeah. minutes of the film. So <laughs> No, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. If that song didn't exist, we actually, and like the book actually, we actually wouldn't know anything about this sword in the stone until the end, yeah, which like I find what, really weird. What is the movie about? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just, 
yeah, it's, how do you anyway? So uh, I gave this a two for animation because it's mostly a book sequence that's stolen from Sleeping Beauty. And now that I think about it, I really should make it a one. Yep. Um, uh, but I'll I'll leave it at two because there's the the image of the sword and the the um signature Disney magic going over the sword, those um little stars. Yep. And uh, for contributions to the story, I gave it a five because it is the only time that I see any sort of slither of idea of plot. <laughs> in the yeah, film. no, that's fair enough. Despite the fact the plot has nothing to do with the sword and the stone and the king being dead and all that stuff until the end, yeah. um, I, I just went, oh, okay, you know, this before I'd seen the rest of the film, I was like, this sets it up really well. Have the five. Yeah, that's really well done. And then I realised the song's completely okay. irrelevant to the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why I only gave it a three. Um, and so, like you said, it perfectly sets up the sword and the stone and what the sword and the stone represents. I think I would have rated it higher if it had have given us a better introduction to maybe characters. The actual characters uh, we're going to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because like, like like you said, it does perfectly introduce us to the Sword and the Stone, which we don't ever see again until Despite the last that, five minutes I gave minutes it a zero for Catchy Kylie Ewan. Okay. Because I can't sing it for you right now. No, that's fair enough. I can only sing one of the lines, I think, and I think it's the Sword in the Stone line. <laughs> is it the totally- Sword <laughs> in the Stone? I don't know if yeah. I've made that up, but is that how it goes? Uh, it's It's... Yeah, you've made it up, but it's it's that sort of vibe, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that's why I gave it a two as opposed to a zero because I could recall one line from it. Yeah, to me, the way I think I'm going to approach these uh, songs is when I get to the end of the film, can I sing anything from it? Yeah, and yeah, I got absolutely. to the end of the film and I thought I can't remember how that went. Yeah, but I know I really liked it. So in the moment, it's beautiful, but it's not catchy enough to to live on, which is probably why no one knows it. But I think it's one that if you're not going to rewatch this movie, because I mean. Yeah. Unless you really wanted to, unless you're a hardcore <laughs> fan, why would you? I think we'll look up that song because it is really lovely. Really, really pretty. Um, on to the Sword in the Stones version of Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, Higgitus Fegitus. Hockety, hockety, wockety, whack. Abber, 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 nack. Shrink in size, very small. We've got to save enough room for all. Higgitus, 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 When we originally were talking about doing this podcast and we were trying to map the movies that we needed to cover, I initially said Sword in the Stone and you said, are there any songs in that? And I said, yeah, it's got that awesome song that I remember seeing a sequence of called Bippity Bobbity Boo. And you were like, (laughs) no, that's Cinderella. <laughs> and you're right. It is a hundred percent them trying to do a bippity boppity boppity boo. Um, yeah. And it's not terrible. It's not terrible, but it's uh, yeah. It's it's certainly a, a pale comparison to yeah. bippity boppity boo. And it's it's a shame because the Shermans became quite known for making nonsensical songs. The most famous being Super Cal. Yeah. But yeah, this is just. I don't know. I felt like Merlin was a really good marriage between the fairy godmother and Gandalf. Yeah, okay. Um, Just that kind of like silly, <laughs> nonsensical. <laughs> I don't know. I really liked Merlin. Merlin was the only character that I sort of liked. But, yeah, this song was just a bit meh. Yeah. I, I scored this flat threes with the exception of Contribution to the Story I gave two and a half. Yeah. 
And Kachi, my CK score was one because I sort of remember it was going, Hikitus, Figitus, something or something or something. Yeah. And to, further to your point about Merlin being sort of the most likable, he's also the character that we only, that we hear most from. Like, all, pretty much all these songs, aside from little interjections by Wart and besides Mad, Mad Madam Mim and The Sword and the Stone, they're, they're sung by Merlin. Mm. This, it's really strange in that a kid's movie that ideally, or I'm assuming they wanted kids to connect with, that the only character really singing songs is an old man. Yeah. It's yeah. strange. It's really strange. It is very strange. But as yeah, look, I, I summarise this as Hig Fig, <laughs> um, and so for Hig Fig, I gave it a three for music. Uh, I gave it a two for lyrics because I was bothered by the amount of song words that were just made up, and I know that's kind of the point of it. Oh, you're a PL Travers. Am I? Am I? You pulled a PL Travers. <laughs> she hated Super Cow. Oh, really? And no, because she. Do you remember? I've never forgotten for some reason that scene in Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah. Where they're not singing Super Califragilistic. They're singing maybe It's a Jolly Holiday or something. And there's a made up word in the middle of it. And she's yeah. like, stop, stop, stop. What is that word? That's not a real word. I don't want any made up words. And then they look down, they see Super Califragilistic on the piano, and they just slip it behind. <laughs> like, <laughs> just hide it. Here we go. Responsible is not a word. We made it up. Well, unmake it up. <laughs> it is a very heartwarming movie. I think I am going to have to rewatch that again at some point. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, look, so something like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious I can get on board with because it's the same word that is, re- that's the same made up word that's repeated. With mm. this, with so many made up words in it, um, I find that that sort of, and I might get some hate for this, but I feel like that sort of nullifies some of the artistry of it because if you're trying to find a word that matches perfectly with your song, if you can just make up one, then that feels like it takes away from everything else that you're doing, to me personally. Mm. So, yeah, I gave it a two for lyrics. All right. Yeah. Um, animation, I gave it a three because it's quite fun, the way that everything's sort of like sucking down into his bag. Yeah. Um, at contribution, I gave a one because it literally contributes nothing. <laughs> so in that case, I probably should have given it a zero. I always forget that I can rate things zero. And in fact, as we were talking, I went through and I went, yeah, okay, no, nah, I'm going to change some things to zero. <laughs> so I'm probably going to change that to zero as well because- uh, it contributes nothing. You could argue that it contributes by showing how magical Merlin is, but we've yeah. already seen that with all of the <laughs> dancing crockery and stuff. So zero for contribution. And Catchy Earworm, I gave it a three. Oh. Because I do remember how it goes. All right, cool. Yeah. Yep. Cool. No, that's fair, fair. Um, okay, Stackers. So this brings us to the first of our two songs from the cutting room floor. Songs from the cutting room, songs from the cutting room, songs from the cutting room. Song. And this song is called The Magic Key. And The Magic Key is supposed to have been written to, it was the original um, Higgitus Figitus. So basically it's the song that Merlin sings when um, he meets uh, Wart. And it is all about the magic key being using your brain. So it very much ties in more with the um, lessons that Arthur is trying to, uh, sorry, Merlin is trying to teach Arthur in the movies. 
With a hey dum derry and a derry dum dee, fill your noggin full of knowledge and then you'll see what a glorious experience your life will be. A noggin full of knowledge is the magic key. Magic key, magic key to what? The key to the doors to the future and past of both be yours to explore at last. The greatest adventure of them all you see. A noggin full of knowledge is the magic key. So yeah, that's uh, the magic key which I think is quite fun. And I think it's actually better than Higgitus Figgitus, personally, because I find the, the sort of like running lyrics, you know, a noggin full of knowledge is the magic key, really, really fun. Oh, yeah. And I guess it, it has more of a point than just magical words. I'm singing magical words. It's like yeah. he's, he's talking about why knowledge is important. Absolutely. I and I think the thing yeah. that annoyed me about um, Higgitus Figgitus, as I said, is is the, the sort of made up words. This doesn't seem to have many made up words in it. It's just very clever rhyming and very clever use of the lyrics, mm. um, of the words for the lyrics. I, I, I think it's um, I think it's really fun. So, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's the magic key. Songs from the cutting room, songs from the cutting room, songs from the cutting room. Song, so that brings us, then there's quite a gap, and that brings us to the first in the sort of magical... Uh, you know, lesson songs called That's What Makes the World Go Round. Left and right, by day and night, that's what makes the world go round. In and out, thin and stout, that's what makes the world go round. For every up, there is a down. For every square, there is a round. Yes. For every high, there is a low. For every two, there is a fro. Fro. Yes, fro. In and out, up and down. Something, something makes the world go round. Yeah. That's a song. That's a song. It exists. <laughs> it's really hard because, like, I still see, you know, and I guess it, it pulls at that, like, sentimental thing of you could put this song in Mary Poppins. Yeah. And I feel like it wouldn't feel so stupid in Mary Poppins. No, no, it wouldn't at all. No. <laughs> Can you imagine Julie Andrews singing it as opposed to um, Merlin? Oh, yeah. It, it, it kind of, like, kicks it up a notch. In and out, up and down. That's what makes... Why is she Scottish? I don't know. <laughs> Mary Poppins. <laughs> Instead of terrible Cockney, it's terrible Glaswegian or something. <laughs> I Look, I, I rated this quite... Kindly, because I thought it's actually it's not a terrible song. It's just sent in the middle of a stupid movie. Yeah, yeah. What did you rate it? I rated it at a three for music. And mm-hmm. looking ahead, I've actually rated all of them as three for music for different reasons. Um, I think that the from memory the the uh, orchestration is quite nice and fills mm-hmm. it out quite nicely. Yeah. Um, and it's a little sort of jaunty tune almost, but yeah, there's nothing really to it. So I gave it a three for music, a two for lyrics. Uh, a three for animation because all the underwater stuff is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I gave it a one for contribution and a zero for our cake score. Ah, there you go. Okay. For that one makes the world go round. I gave it a three for music, same as you. I also gave it a three for lyrics because I just think the Shermans are really clever with silly rhymes. I just really like it. I think it's cute and it's really fun and um, perfect for the audience that they're writing for. Yep, fair. I gave it a 3.5 for animation because, like you, I agree the um, the animation of all the underwater stuff is really fun. Yep. I gave it a 2 for contribution to story uh-huh. and I gave it a 0 for our cake score. Yeah, okay, so fairly similar to myself then. Mm. 
Strange. Strange song. Strange sequence. But not as strange as the next sequence that comes with our next song, A Most Befuddling Thing. It's a state of being, frame of mind. It's a most befuddling thing. And to every being of every kind, it is discombobulated. You're wasting time resisting. You'll find the more you do, the more she'll keep insisting. Okay, so this song, is this just all about how horny women are? Basically, yeah. And that's that's the most befuddling thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, women going to be horny. It's confusing, mm. but, yeah. you know, it's hard being hot. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, and now I feel weird <laughs> about the rating I've given it. Because- <laughs> Da fuck. <laughs> Far out. You're hot and women will just want to tear your clothes off and it's, it's we don't get it, but, you know. Yeah, I could not get past the fact that it was squirrels that were trying to fuck him and yeah. the questions that raises in regards to questions that often... Now, this might just say a lot about me, but I have these sorts of questions a lot when I'm watching things like Harry Potter and I it'd be things like... If the squirrels fuck while one of them is actually a human turned into a squirrel, <laughs> what's the what, what kind of weird animal human hybrid is going to result from that? Like <laughs> that says a lot, like I said, that says a lot about me as a person. <laughs> That's where my brain goes. Let's think about this biologically. Yeah, if he turns back into a human, is that squirrel still going to want? No, he's not because that actually happens. Sorry, I've just answered my own question. I don't know. I found this whole scene a bit problematic and weird and so weird. Yeah. So weird. Uh I gave it a 2 for music cuz I think the orchestration is beautiful but the melody's a bit blah. And mm-hmm. also Mal- I accepted when Merlin was speak singing his way through Higgadus Figgadus, but in here I was like for God's sake, where's the melody, dude? No, fair. Yeah. Um in terms of lyrics um, I, I gave it a two, but thinking about the topic here, I'm downgrading that to a one. Um, yep. I'm giving that a one for lyrics. Uh, 2.5 for animation because it's cute. It's problematic, but it's cute. Uh, contribution to story, I gave it a one. And cake score, zero. What yep. about you? I'm very similar. Um, I gave it a two for music because uh, I agree with everything that you've already said. I gave it a two for lyrics. Um, I initially had it as a one, but I laughed so hard at discombobulating, which, <laughs> again, probably says a lot about me as a person, um, that I bumped that up to a two. Uh, I gave it a two for animation, a one for contribution, and a zero for cake. Yeah. So Beautiful. very, very similar. Yeah. Very strange song. Very strange thing to include in a kid's movie. Hey, it's hard being hot. It's, it's hard being hot. It's <laughs> oh boy. Remember, you think Walt fit, Disney had that hot issue. Guys have problems too. For God's sake, <laughs> we'll watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend so you get my references. Okay, I'll, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> oh. oh God. Oh, but look, let's move right on. Let's move right on to Mad Madam Men. With only a touch, I have the power. Zims and Rimbim, you wither a flower. I find delight in the gruesome and grim. 
Oh, that's terrible. Thank you, my boy. But that's nothing, nothing for me. Oh, because I'm the magnificent, marvelous man, Madam Mim. It's funny because often a fun topic to talk about is, you know, what's the best Disney villain song? And I've seen um, people on YouTube doing Disney villain mashups and medleys. And people will go to Jafar's 30-second reprise of Prince Ali over even considering putting in Mad Madam Mim. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I realised when I was watching this, I thought, this is a villain song I've never heard Never before. heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, look, that 30-second reprise of Prince Ali fucking slaps. Oh, it, it's great. It's great. So. <laughs> but still, it's not a full song. It's a reprise. No, it's not. This is a full song and yeah. no one cares. No, no. And now, come to think of it, it's surprising to me that Maleficent didn't have a song. Yeah, over I, this. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But here we are. This is the world we live in. Not the one we want, but the one we've got. Madam Mim's... um. Illust- animal in- illustrations, some of them, uh, it, she does become a dragon at one point, doesn't she? She does, yes, because that was against the yeah, rules. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if you put it next to the uh, animation of the dragon in Sleeping Beauty, I think that's another one that's been copied. Yeah, okay. That outlines the same. Um, yeah. I do, there are points for that that animation sequence that actually follows this song between um her and Merlin because despite the fact it has zero relevance to the plot and zero point and where the hell did this battle even come from, um, it is very, very cool to watch them all become animals and still retain enough features that you can tell who's who and that's very cool. Yeah, yeah. I gave it a two for music and a two for lyrics. Uh Uh-huh. Um, because uh, it's pointless, but you know, well, they're just they're good with lyrics, I guess. Yeah. Three for animation because all the transformation stuff is kind of cool. That's in the context of this song. If it included the battle after, I'd probably bump it to a five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And a contribution to story, I gave it a one point five because I don't see the point really, other than it's introducing a character, but the character, who is she? We're nearly at the end of the film. Why are you here now? Yeah. Yeah. And cake score, I gave zero because I can't remember. It. No, fair enough. Yeah, I, uh, I I rated it quite similarly. Um, Mad Madam Mim gets for me a three for music, a two for lyrics, a three for animation again because, like you said, the uh, the sequence is quite fun. Uh, a zero for contribution and a zero for cake. There you go. There you go. Mad Madam Mim. Mad Madam Mim. She's the only character that got uh, continued a little bit. She's in Kingdom of Hearts, that Disney video game. Oh, Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that. They put her in there, but basically um, Walt Disney didn't really like this film. He thought it was pretty bad and he tried to bury it pretty fast. So there was very little merchandise that was released for this film. And remember, merchandise is a big part of the Disney sales and Disney film and marketing of these films. For sure. There's very little merchandise and very little impact on the parks. I think Merlin was a character for a brief amount of time. They may have named one of the carousels after him for a brief amount of time, but then that was it. There's no... You don't see those characters walking around the parks even today. They haven't gone, oh, we'll throw back to that classic. They just kind of buried it and moved on. Yeah, that's it's it's strange because just before we started recording, I was looking up just a, you know, a list of Disney upcoming Disney projects and it has there that there is a live action version of this movie in the works, which I've never heard about. And all these live actions are so promoted and so advertised that the fact that this supposedly started filming in 2018... <laughs> and we've still not heard anything about it. Don't tell anyone. 
is really strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I to me that sounds so cool until I remember all the animal transformations and that it's so boring to me. Yeah. I want to yeah. see more like sword fighting and battles and training and yeah, that that's sort of like not the point of the story. Yeah, give us a more of a of a an adult Arthur, I think. Yeah. That would be uh that would be fun. And please, for the love of God, don't make them sing. No. <laughs> Pull a Cinderella and just make it a songless version. I just don't know. Yeah. Nobody 100%, cares. 100%. Or, please, for the love of God, if you're gonna get someone to write songs for it, give it to someone other than Pasik and Paul or Lin Manuel Miranda. Like I just need yeah. something different in my life. Oh, having spoke said that though, have you seen oh, what's it called? Let me let me in, just make sure I get it in wrong. Canto? No, V Vivo? Viva? Vivo. Viva. The new Viva. the new Lin-Manuel Miranda movie that's not the other Lin-Manuel movie coming out. There's two animated Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one is a Netflix. This one is a Netflix movie. Yeah. um, Vivo. It's quite fun. I think that one, uh, what one's that one about? Uh, He is not a monkey. What is he? He's a. um, Yeah, that one looks cute. Isn't he a monkey? Kinkajou. Oh, okay. Kinkajou. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's quite fun. I I really recommend it. It's, um, yeah, it's a cute movie. And the songs are pretty good, as you would come to expect from a Lin Manuel. Wait, have you there. seen it? Yeah, yeah, it's out. It's on Netflix. Oh, anyway. I didn't realize it was out. Yeah. Okay, I will watch that. I watched Cruella yesterday. Oh, how, what do you think of that? Have you seen it? No. First half of the movie, excellent. Second half of the movie, crap. Okay, all right. It is on. It is on something I want to watch. So yeah, I will. I think once she becomes Cruella, it's a very quick, hard snap. Right. It makes. Hardly any sense. And I think, yeah, her whole character just kind of becomes st- kind of stupid. It also, they, okay. they try and make a very, very weak attempt to link it to the 101 Dalmatians at the end. It kind of felt like they made this film and then went, oh, crap, that doesn't make sense now if we put it next to this is like the prequel to 101 Dalmatians. And, yeah, uh, okay. and it still makes no sense. We'll talk about it more next time I see you. But I was just like that. I'll watch that it between work. now and then. Yeah. What? That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, Weird. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember we put a thing up on Facebook and we were like, this looks like garbage, <laughs> and then it started coming out and, like, I had people messaging me going, you're wrong, it's actually you're really good. So I'm really hater. interested to watch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested to watch it. Um, But, yeah, for yourself and for anyone else out there, highly recommend Vivo. It's really, really fun. Oh, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah, a particular shout-out to the costume designer of Cruella, whose name is Jenny Beaven, I think. Jenny Beaven. I have heard it's incredible. Yeah, she did Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. she just, she's got such a, uh, uh, like, I feel like her imagination just pours out of her when she cost- does costume designs because they're always so unique. But, uh, yeah, there's some incredible, incredible outfits in this in this film. Yeah, so. no, I'm definitely going to check it yeah. out. Definitely check it out. Okay, so Stackers, I wasn't actually sure where this song goes in the movie. I can't find anything about it. I believe it's at the start of the movie, but I'm just going to, we'll just talk about it now at the end um, because, yeah, I, I couldn't find a confirmation on that. And it's called Blue Oak Tree. To the blue oak tree on a field of white We pledge our loyalty forever The white stands for right 
purity and might, and the blue stands for truth, yea, verily forsooth. So we drink our toast to the banner we love most. May it proudly wave on high. We will sing all night and all day. We will fight for the blue oak tree on the field of white. So yeah, that's a uh, blue oak tree. And Robert um, Sherman's so good with lyrics. Yeah, yeah, he is. And they um they describe it as a really weird song. Like in the, they've said this is a weird song. Um, and basically their intention was to write a song that shows how stupid the knights in the castle are. Right. Because all they do every day is eat and joust, drink and joust, and eat some more. Um, and they had loyalty to this this symbol of a blue oak tree on a field of white, which means nothing. Like there's no <laughs> there's no symbolism to it. So yeah, I find that really fun that they wrote a song that they know is a weird song. Uh and yeah, that was obviously cut for for some reason. Right. There is a little bit of that left in the film. There is a little bit, yeah. So they've cut the whole song, um, but one yeah. part is sung in it. I'm honestly I do not remember which part it is or where it's sung in the movie. Uh- it's right at the end, and they're zooming in on. It looks like they're going to go into a into the castle or into an inn or something, and okay. you hear something, something, something. Blue oak tree of white, and I'm like, oh, we're going to go in the end and see him singing, and then it just cuts to something else. <laughs> right. Okay. Because I went to to write this song, and then I thought, oh, that that's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, no, I didn't bother writing the song. So yeah, that's uh, that's blue oak tree. There was less of that than there was Canine Crunchies. So we didn't write Canine Crunchies. We're not going to write that. (laughs) Oh, Canine Crunchies. Good times. Good times. It is worth uh, mentioning, just because we have been talking about the Sherman Brothers a lot, and it would be really amiss of me to not mention that they also wrote songs for Disneyland. So Steve, uh, Stephen. Who's Stephen? Walt Disney. (laughs) (laughs) His younger brother, Stephen Disney. (laughs) Walt Disney asked uh, asked them to write some music for the Tiki Room. So they wrote that song um, called The Tiki Room. Ole, ole, it's showtime. In the Tiki, 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 Tiki Room. In the Tiki, 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 Tiki Room. All the birds sing word and the flowers croon. In the Tiki, 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 Tiki Room. room song. Again, I know this song because... <laughs> What's on the record? Far out. Everything I know is from that. Do you know that song? Uh, I, I recognise it. I don't know it well. <laughs> okay. Well, they wrote that. But more importantly, they also wrote one of, if not the most famous um, Disney song ever? Do you know what that would be? It's a small world. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small, small world. So, yeah, they wrote that for what is now known as Epcot. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. There's a story of um, Dick and Bob Sherman. They were on a boat. I don't know if Walt Disney was on the boat um, with their wives. And when I say a boat, I mean in the theme park. It was some sort of, you know, you get on a boat. Okay, not like, I'm on a boat. Yeah. (laughs) I'm on a boat. 
and uh, <laughs> they they were on it, and the tape stopped. So the yeah. four of them got up and just sang it on loop for the rest of the ride. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's quite cute. Cute. Um, also, yeah. uh, kind of annoying. But people who go to Disney, when you go to Disneyland, it's just a different world. Like nothing's annoying. Everything <laughs> yeah. is happy and magical. And you would, if someone just sang that oh. to me and walked behind me for the entire trip, I probably would have been like, "Yeah, sing it again!" Like. <laughs> I'm a I'm a very cynical person, so I can just imagine being on this boat and these four fuckers just stand up and start singing. I would have been like, who the fuck are these people? Get them off my boat. I am getting a refund. <laughs> oh, no, that place changes you, Will. It changes you. I look forward to it. When Remember we to, to uh, subscribe to our Patreon so we can get Will to Disneyland <laughs> yeah. and he can experience true happiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, look, that brings us to... Angie's Anecdotes. All right, so look, I'm not going to lie. Angie fell asleep within about five minutes of this movie. <laughs> but in that five minutes, she gave me something pretty good. So <laughs> I'm happy. Yeah, she. like I said, actually, I don't know if I did say this. We um started watching this movie late because I had a like a Zoom catch up with my family. Um, last night and that ran over a bit and we started watching this about 9.30 and it's not a great movie. So yeah, she fell asleep within about five minutes. Um, but in that five minutes, we are listening to the first opening song, which as we've already talked about is a lovely song and it sort of, it mentions the sword and the stone and how someone needs to pull it out and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And Angie just comes out with this. <clears throat> just spray some Glen 20 on there, pull it out, movie over. <laughs> and then she goes... Wait, I mean WD-40. Ah, I fucked my own joke. (laughs) Glenn 20. (laughs) And then she turns to me and goes, Ah, well, at least it'll be clean. (laughs) If you you started with that song, because that song's beautiful, and then said, okay, we're only going to include the content that actually involves the sword and the stone, the whole film would run for about five minutes. Yeah, (laughs) not even. No joke. It is so little in the movie. I was so stunned. Yeah, I kind of thought it would be about how everyone's trying to pull it out um, and, you know, he's a nobody and then he becomes the unexpected king and then there's a little bit more about what happens after that. I think even if you pepper in throughout the movie little sequences of people trying to pull the sword out of the stone, yeah, just keep it relevant. That is infinitely a better movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, look, that's uh, that's Sword in the Stone from 1963. I think probably my least favourite movie yeah. so far. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so dry and there it's is nothing so to it. It's so boring. And so, downhill we go um, because the movie that follows this Walt Disney did not even live to see released. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, it's all it's all going downhill from here. But Will, before we wrap it up, what was the winning song of the episode? Oh yes, excellent point. Now we've been uh, very good and we've gone in and put all our scores. So the winning song is <laughs> the sword in the stone. It seemed that the land would be torn by war Or saved by a miracle alone And 
Okay, so that's the sword in the stone. We very much look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time when we dissect the next Disney movie, 1967's The Jungle Book. Until we see you then, I'm Stackers. And I'm Will. See you next time. Bye. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network, with gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.